All right. Good morning, everyone. I'm Dr. Jordan Valrath. Welcome to Cherry Live. So today we're talking with Dr. Lobenberg about what's wrong with topical diclofenac. So of course, diclofenac, that's like one of the staples in our prescribing and over-the-counter arsenal for all sorts of different things. And so, you know, personally, that's like one of my go-to potions for anything that aches and pains and hurts. So I'm really excited to learn a little bit more. Uh, in terms of Cherry Health, this is Canada's medical network. So we're bringing together the Canadian medical community for jobs, for community, for information sharing. And so super excited to be hosting the event today. And uh, Dr. Lowenberg. You got a nice presentation lined up for us. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So yeah, um, in terms of today's chat, uh, you've got a bit of a, a talk to go through with us. So we'll share your screen and we'll go through some of that stuff. Uh, what do we need to know about today? What's kind of the overview of what we're going to cover? Yeah, I will have a slide with an overview of what, what we will cover. I will talk about... Um, yeah, first the background of compounding shortly and then um, what is on the market and what questions I got from Blue Cross Blue Shield in some years ago here in Alberta, which triggered that we looked into topical diclofenac. And then I will show you, share some data which we generated and um, a, a observation study and a clinical trial which was done with diclofenac and then I will give you some conclusions and some future directions where we are working on and maybe some of you might be interested in this future directions also. Awesome, looking forward to it. Now it sounds like some really good stuff that might be changing my practice, so that's awesome. Um, so yeah, in terms of that, we'll have some time at the end for Q&A for everyone joining us this morning and then we'll get your questions in there. But uh, for now, yeah, why don't we go ahead? We'll let you share your screen. It should be enabled and then we're off to the races. Yeah, let's do this. Should be able to see my screen. That's showing up for me. I can see that. Perfect. Okay, good. Yeah. Said what is wrong with topical diclofenac? This is the topic of I want to talk today. First, a disclosure of conflicts of interest. So I'm the director of BioNext and Defense Therapeutics here in Canada. I was co-founder of RS Therapeutics, which is the company which has Fomadam, well, markets Fomadam, which we will talk about. And I'm also a, a founder of JSC Pharmaceuticals, which is a consulting company. And I got financial support for projects like this for MyTax. <clears throat> here, very quickly, or oh, beautiful Alberta if you are at the East Coast. So luckily it's not so smoky anymore. And I sit at the moment exactly here, this window. And from here, I give my talk. This is a short look into our labs. We have the Drug Development Innovation Center in our faculty um, where we develop new drugs and um, new formulations especially. Yeah. And here's the outline, what I want to talk in the next some minutes about it. First, compounding reasons and regulations. Then the Blue Cross questions I got some years ago about topical basis for diclofenac. And then how do we test the performance of these um, uh, dosage forms? I will show you very quickly. Then another question about the high doses of diclofenac, uh, Blue Cross uh, put on me and then I give you some data of an observational study and a clinical trial and then some future directions and conclusions and then you can ask me any question you have. Let's begin with why can we do compounding? This is regulated in policy 51 which Health Canada had put out in 2009 um, and here the point is you need a compounder, you need a prescriber and you need a patient and when this relationship is given then 
um, we can compound, and that means this is regulated under provincial laws, so the healthcare prof uh, professional is, and the prescriber and, and compounder and the patient have the relationship and that means the colleges are responsible for it for anything else for finished dosage forms for mass production of anything the federal government is important uh, is responsible for it and that's why we have these drug identification numbers so why do we do compounding on the one hand, while because the dosage form might not be commercially available or a drug strength is not commercially available, you know, um, there's limited st drug stability sometimes. We had also with COVID, we saw drug shortages where pharmacies compounded um, ibuprofen suspensions, for example, veterinarian products are often compounded, special populations, pediatrics, geriatrics, where you make tailored dosage forms that they are easier to administer. Nuclear pharmacy so, um, is also under compounding regulated and then specialized patients with IVs, of course, and in home healthcare, we have a lot of compounding, especially sterile compounding. So jumping directly to the question, I got some years a letter from Blue Cross here in Alberta. And they asked me, you know, we review um, the topical um, drug deliveries and we would like to ask you some questions and so they did. So one of the questions was, are you able to comment on what are the major difference between the commonly used vehicles? So PLO gel, the Versa Pro cream and all the different creams. And as I was very short to them, I told them, no, at this moment, I couldn't do anything because I we hadn't studied this. And every company develops a different base with a different property. So it is very difficult to uh, really make a general statement of how will the space behave on the skin. But I told them you there are in vitro methods how we can assess the performance and how, for example, Health Canada or the US FDA, what, what kind of data do they expect from a company when they apply for a drug identification number? And it's very simple. It's such a simple cell. It's called a front cell, which has here a receptor medium. It is heated. So for transdermal, for um, dermal application, we would do it at uh, 32 degrees Celsius. This is the skin temperature for, uh, best simulated. Then you put a membrane, or you can also put skin in here. And then you put on the top, in the donor compartment, your dosage form. And you have a stir, um, stirrer in it, and then you take a needle and take samples over time. And then you can see how quick the drug goes from the one compartment to the other compartment. And here is a very quick overview what kind of ointments are normally exist. So they are oliganeous bases. Think about the Vaseline, you know, they are normally not water permeable very well. So when you put them onto your skin, um, the skin might sweat under the um, base. Then we have absorption bases. These are bases which can um, absorb some water. So you can work some drug in a solution into these bases. Then we have the oil and water or water and oil emulsion bases. So, and then we have the water soluble bases. Think about Bendy, these kind of bases. They are extremely good water soluble and you can wash them off very good. However, these bases yeah, are very viscous. They have their own properties, as I said. And um, the question is, are they good or are they not so good? And we, uh, when this question from Blue Cross 
Pushil came to us, we investigated these bases and also the PLO bases. And we then also thought about what else is available. And there is a so-called microemulsion. Here, a little graph how the particle size between a normal emulsion or suspension and a microemulsion is changing. So these um, emulsion particles get much smaller. The word, word microemulsion is a little bit historically uh, because they are not micro, they are nano. <laughs> so micro emulsions are actually nano emulsions in the nanometer size, and they are different to liposomes. Liposomes are have a bilayer membrane where then inside could be some hydrophilic, and then comes the bilayer, and then outside the water phase. So liposomes are different from these micro, uh, nano emulsions or micro emulsions, which are micelles more, micelle like. And to show you the difference, here's a laser beam going through water. And as you can see, there's no breaking of the laser beam. But when we have a microemulsion, because the microemulsion looks to the outside like water, so like a one-phase system, but it is not because the particles are, or these vesicles are so small, then the laser beam gets scattered. So this is a one of the signs that we can see. Yes, this is a microemulsion and not just a water system, one phase system. And when we started our investigations, we went, we got several different compounding bases with diclofenac in it. And then we put them on this system I just showed you with the membrane. And some bases didn't deliver any drug to the other side. Here, the um, light green base uh, uh, graph shows you the Voltaron emul gel, which we tested also here, this um, uh, yellow one was a PLO gel. And as you can see there, uh, they don't release, they release 50% in six hours or now 45% in six hours. And then we had a microemulsion. We gelled it at this time point or had it as a solution. Solutions of you can't handle so good on, on the skin because it will run off. So we gelled this in the beginning. Uh, because at this time point, we didn't know that you can also foam the whole thing and make a foam out of it. And as you can see, these microemulsions, they delivered much more, 75% in six hours, or so nearly double of the amount um, through the membrane. And then when we learned that we can also make a foam, and a foam is in the end just making a solution more handleable, more easier to administer, because you can put the foam onto your hand and then put it on the area you want to treat. And when we compared then the foam formulation with Voltaron, we also saw, yeah, we get again around 70, sorry, around 75% um, release of the drug. And only what is released can get really absorbed into the skin. Yeah, so we concluded that there, that the foamable um, diclofenac um, foam is a good and great potential to enhance topical transdermal delivery. And you have to think about the skin, what the skin is and how the skin protects us because the upper layer, the stratum corneum is a dead cells and they are a little bit like the shield for us. So they are very lipophilic and you have to go, you have to penetrate this lipophilic um, part of the skin to reach the tissues under it. And when you just have something sitting on top of it, it will not go through. So you have to have, delivery systems which help to overcome this barrier in the skin. 
And this brought then the second question from the Dr. Krugos to me. They said, can you help us with the high doses which are given? Um, because the, we see 10%, sometimes even up to 20% of drugs prescribed topically. And at that time point, I also could only tell them, I don't know, but it sounds a little bit weird because think about it, as a physician, you might give a double dose, maybe you could consider this sometimes, but 10 times a dose, would you do this normally? I had there my, my, my question, I said, you know, and when you look now at the data I showed you from the performance, maybe because the, they don't release very much, you can dose more and more. But the question is, does it reach the patient, you know? And um, the side effects are very important to consider this when you increase the dose, right? They are COX-1, COX-2 inhibitors, and there we have gastrointestinal side effects, cardiovascular side effects, renal side effects. So we have a whole, yeah, area of side effects which are, can be very, very severe, and um, we have to be careful when we increase the dose, right? And we had then see 10, 20% of these things, and I have not heard any effect in any reports really of um, that people um, reported back that they had with the 20% diclofenac um, any side effects. And this makes made me also a little bit um, suspicious because when you look at the 1988 FDA monograph of Voltaren, there they say that even the gel can have an increased risk of serious gastrointestinal adverse events yeah, bleeding, ulceration, yeah, so even the, and this was the 1%, they saw even with 1% certain gastrointestinal side effects, and um, when we now look into the, oops, sorry, about this, the amount uh, for Volteron, this is taken from Volteron products on the market, what the manufacturer um, tells us, they, um, say you should not exceed 32 grams per day of the um, Volteran, uh, which is equivalent to 320 milligrams of Volteran topically. And when you now look at 10%, of course, you are 10 times higher. That means um, everything in red is showing us where we exceed the amount of uh, diclofenac topically recommended by the manufacturer and they had clinical trials where they um, assessed the doses you should give, right? And this brought me, when I saw this cartoon, to a patient who goes to the pharmacy and says, I didn't experience any of the side effects listed in the enclosed literature. Should I be concerned? And what I just told you brought me up to this question, no side effect, no effect maybe, you know, because when we normally increase the dose, the side effect is uh, is an effect we don't want to have, a toxic effect sometimes, which is established at a specific dose, right, at the therapeutic dose, you know, and when we don't see, when we increase 10 times the dose and don't see any increase in side effects, this should ask us really the question, if there's no side effect, maybe is there even an effect, yeah, and uh, I discussed this with one of my colleagues. She's a clinical pharmacist in family medicine. And then they said, you know, let's have a little observational study and look at these microemulsions. So they, she prescribed the microemulsion to patients at 2%. And they looked at the um, P50 
pain score. And as you can see here, from eight to four, from 10 to three. So for many, for the 11 patients they had, um, except for two patients, um, everybody had at least 50% um, pain reduction in uh, four weeks. So they made a two-week visit and a four-week visit and assessed these things. And only patients which had some other um, drugs like cortical um, or um, morphine, so different other drugs which were which they took at the same time, they didn't feel such a relief. So they had probably a very, very severe pain and um, there the um, topical diclofenac, at least in this microemulsion, didn't do the same job as for the other patients. And here we see also one who had 10% PLO gel and had no relief, but when he got a uh, the microemulsion, suddenly the, um, the pain relief went from severe, from relative high severe to um, moderate, more moderate, yeah. And there they concluded for the 2% that um, nine patients had 50% reductions, two patients had only um, not significant pain reduction, unfortunately. And then I was lucky. I have a lot of international students, and one student came from Thailand, and she developed, wanted to develop in my lab a traditional Chinese, uh, Thai um, herbal mixture for um, topical delivery, and she wanted to make a gel. And I said to her, no, let's not make a gel, let's make a microemulsion. So the SHT-ME um, microemulsion was the microemulsion by, from this Thai mixture. And then we, um, she asked me when she went back to Thailand, what should I do as a controller? And I said, how about you take a drug as a controller and com compare your extract with uh, a pharmaceutical extract at 2%. And when you look here at the bus values, they started at 52, and after four weeks, it was at 24. It was very similar behavior also for the Thai extract, also walking 100 meters to 82 seconds, after four weeks, 77 seconds. So they had an improvement in their mobility, but this was for both the Thai extract and the um, drug, what we saw that the Thai extract is not as stable as the um, diclofenac. So diclofenac in the stability study we did was more stable and longer stable. They looked at pain index, stiffness index, physical function index, you know, when you every time look at really pain index from 9.5 to 5.3, you know, stiff index 3.5 to 1.9. So we saw every time a significant decrease in these um, assessments. Yeah? And also when they looked at overall at the end, around 40% of the people said much better or excellent results and nobody said non-effect, you know. So there were small differences between the between the um, Thai extract and our um, diclofenac, but uh, Altogether, what we saw is, yeah, there were two formulations which were very um, effective, and that we think is because of the uh, microemulsion that we get the actives really through the skin. Yeah? Also, side effects, we had just dizziness, and the other, the tie extract was known to make um, uh, dry mouth there. We had some reported, but when you look at the numbers, they are quite low altogether. 
Also, they looked at blood pressure, cholesterol, glucose, you know, and when you look at these values, they didn't change at all, or um, really, US physicians are much better to read these values than myself, but when I look at these, there were, in most cases, no significant differences um, throughout the four weeks of uh, treatment periods. Here, renal function also and liver function, which have to be monitored and also here, there was nothing which was of any concern. So where are we now these days? We um, have developed this base and now we um, also had a other problem coming up because regulations here in Canada changed. And as you probably heard from some of your patients, Around one and a half years ago, the pharmacy stopped compounding, at least in Alberta, uh, because there were new regulations when you have a powder um, and the drug powder that can get airborne and they have to invest into relative expensive facilities with clean room facilities and um, yeah, that nobody can inhale the drug molecules, which is, can be um, dangerous, and I'm totally for this regulation. But on the other hand, uh, if patients don't get their medication anymore, then, then we have a problem. So we came up with the idea to make a drug solution, diclofenac in a solution, and hopefully this will come to the market soon so that um, pharmacies all over Canada, again, can compound diclofenac in different bases because the drug solution doesn't get uh, airborne. That means um, this would be under the regulations um, level A compounding, and this can be done then in every uh, pharmacy. So we have submitted a monograph to the United States Pharmacopeia, USP. When you look into drug products, many of the drug products have a USP monograph, aspirin, USP, set aminophane, suspension, USP. So there are monographs for finished products, but also for compounded products, they have monographs. And we filed one for a compounded monograph. Hopefully in October, this will be this year, um, published and we hopefully get then also from Health Canada the permission to um, make diclofenac um, available in, as a solution so that compounding pharmacies or all pharmacies can again compound diclofenac and yeah. And what else do we have? So we looked not only at diclofenac, we looked also at ketamine, at lidocaine. We think ketamine could be an interesting drug for shingles. Um, also boric acid for yeast infections, amitriptyline, we also saw that 2% can be um, put into this uh, foam formulation. So the foam formulation can't take the high doses, but can take doses, as you see here with diclofenac, up to 3%. Um, but as we saw in clinical assessment, even the lower doses have quite good effects. Yeah. And it brings me to what is next. We look now into fluorbiprofene, which is a drug very similar to diclofenac. We also want to look into hormones. Some of you probably are also prescribing topical hormones because we think that this delivery system might help that the hormones really get absorbed into the skin and less of the hormone are, is left over on the top of the skin and is then a danger to the rest of the fam family. And just um, to wrap up here a little bit, if you are interested about other things I do, um, we have now from Health Canada with the special access program, the ability to work with physicians 
about um, psilocybin and MDMA. So just if you are in this field. And here are some pictures of how we started with this were the first batch, test batch we did of this foam. And nowadays we upgraded our equipment, have modern facilities. And with this, I come to my conclusion. I think topical or local delivery of diclofenac with the Fomoderm can reduce joint and muscle pain. Good safety and efficiency was observed in, a, in the clinical trial. And this nanotechnology in topical drug delivery can make a big difference for your patients. And your patients will probably love the base because it's not gluey, it's not sticky, and it works. Yeah, and with this, I want to thank you for the privilege of your time to listen to me. And if you have any questions, then we can take now time for that. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Lovenberg. Um, so definitely, I got a lot of questions. Uh, if anyone has any other questions, feel free to pop them into the Q&A there, and then we'll work our way through. But like, how did you get started with this? Like, what was kind of the genesis of the new micro emulsion technology? Like, was this design like was there a specific problem you were trying to solve or was it like you found new applications for the existing molecule and then this was the path that went down or how do you even figure out that this has that effect yeah okay it, it started really with a letter from Flukos asking me this question you know uh, and I said you know I don't know and then we first assessed what is on the market and then my, my student I had I said to her you know what now we know what's not working how about we do something new and let's look in literature what is mentioned there and there we saw oh yeah my, micromulsions are mentioned and uh, and then we said, I said to her, you know, how about we begin now? We make a microemulsion. So this this goes really back for many many years. We had to. This is not done overnight. And um, then we saw that the microemulsions are more uh, faster um, getting the um, drug through a membrane. This was just an in vitro test. But and then luckily one of my colleagues took it up and says, yes, let's uh, prescribe it and see how it works in patient. There we saw for the first time. In patients, yes, it has really a very good effect, you know. Um, so it was first a technical question which was asked to me, and then we said, because we are academics, so we have to find something new also. Um, we assessed what, what, what is there, and then we said, what is out there on top of it? And uh, this was the very interesting part here that we um, could then see that nanotechnology really can make a big difference. And then a little story from my personal background. I did my PhD in nanoparticles as drug carriers at that time for AIDS in the early 90s. And um, when I submitted my first paper, scientific paper, it came back from the reviewer saying nanoparticles, who needs that will never be important. <laughs> And nowadays we know that all when we come down to this nano size delivery systems, the world changes. There, um, uh, there are effects which are a little bit different than, than the micro and normal scale, where we see better delivery mechanisms, better uptake. Um, and yeah, these, this we applied then to the topical route of administration. And so all things being, maybe all things aren't equal, but like when it comes to you know, a higher dose, but a lower absorption versus a lower dose and a higher absorption, 
Like, why do you think that the, the, the studies were showing an improved efficacy and reduced side effects? Like why you know, the pain scores, the stiffness scores, you know, like you'd think that all things being equal, you know, if you have the low dose and the high, and you know what I mean? Like, why, why is there an improvement there? Like, what is it about the, the nanoparticles that actually like improve the therapeutic efficacy? Yeah, it, I think it is re reaching the target. It is reaching the target. So what is not really absorbed, but does not perform well, right? So we, these, these tests I show you with the cell is a performance test. Um, think about when you have generics. Not every generic gets approved because they put the same drug in it, in the same tablet or same capsule, right? And then they have not the same performance. Um, and then they don't get approved. So um, when we have generics, they have to be as good or as bad as the innovator product. And now taking this principle to the topical delivery, where we have so many different bases, um, we have not studied these things very well in most cases, you know. And topical studies are not very simple, to be honest, um, because the only very small amounts get systemically um, available, and th this is then often very difficult to detect. So topical delivery is um, still relatively um, labor-intensive to study. And what we did with this performance test, we just looked into what can go on this way, hydrophobic membranes, because we wanted to mimic what happens on the upper layer of our skin, which is also very hydrophobic, because this is the major barrier for drug delivery. No? And what we saw is, yeah, the microemulsion is able to um, overcome this barrier better. And then a lower drug amount, which reaches its target, is probably much better than a large drug amount, which just sits on the skin and not doing any, anything until you wash it away, you know? I guess it kind of, you because you want it to absorb, but you don't want it to absorb, you know, straight through to the bloodstream, right? There's kind of like that sweet spot in the window. Like you mentioned, you know, we often think of like topical, uh, you know, diclofenac, for example, as being pretty benign, but you're 100%, right? There are like serious systemic side effects and bleeding and ulcers and things that can come from that because there is actually quite a bit of systemic absorption going on there. And so it really is about like having that drug hit the target and not like keep going all the way through. Yeah, and maybe also with the microemulsion, uh, the dose you probably, because the foam is easy to spread, um, people probably also don't use so much of it, you know, with a, with a cream you massage this in over quite a, a long time period. So um, probably a smaller dose with a good delivery system can get you the relief you want to have. And um, this would be then to make this, such a thing to a commercial product, then you really have to study all these steps, how much is, is systemically available and so on. But what we saw so far from a compounding perspective, patients which tried this um, diclofenac topical foam, they didn't want to go back to the PLO gels mm -hmm. because it's not sticky, it's not stinky, it um, is easy to spread. And what we've heard so far from doctors and patients back, uh, they got their pain relief. And I showed you the clinical trial also there uh, where we saw significant drop in pain scores. Well, and what has been the, the patient feedback like on the, just the, the delivery itself? Because I know I've had patients like refuse to stop using their, you know, the cream or their ointment because they just like hated kind of the tactile feel of like it lingering on the skin. And it, it, it just like gets, a, gets in your clothes and can make a mess. Like, 
How's been the response to having like more of that foam profile? Yeah, so far we only heard of, um, we saw from certain, some physicians wrote us back and also some patients wrote us back saying they love it because it is exactly, it's not stinky, it's not gluey uh, and it absorbs very fast and it has the clinical effect. It has the therapeutic effects they wish to have. And I think this is the point um, of, yeah, we have now something which is superior to what is on the market at the moment, even as a commercial product. And um, yeah, what we heard so far, no patient wanted to go back to the conventional product or commercial product or to the PLO gels after they um, had prescribed this uh, topical foam. And, and so can you back up and kind of just fill us in a little bit on like, what is even involved in bringing a product like this to the market? Because, you know, we kind of like naively just prescribe it and take it for granted that these things exist and they're out there. But no doubt there's been you know, years, if not decades of research and testing and things going on behind the scenes. And there's this really big process with a lot of checkpoints and safeties built in. Like, what did that actually look like for you and the team in terms of bringing Fomaderm to market? Yeah, okay, we, we have it on the market now as a compounding base um, so that the doctor and the compounder can um, decide of the drug they can put in and the amount of drug which can go in. But to make this into a commercial product, we, we asked Health Canada, what would it take? And they told us you need an endpoint study. That means you need a clinical study um, which shows really that it is efficacious. Um, and so this is then other several years of work probably and also clinical studies. Um, at this time point, because we saw it is um, efficacious and it can be compounded by pharmacies, we uh, wanted to make it available as a um, yeah, compounding base so that doctors can now um, prescribe it. And as I said, we have now some other projects going on where we look into uh, making commercial products out of it. But uh, the first step is really um, seeing that something really works, you know, um, and I think diclofenac works, hopefully fluobiprofane or the hormones will also work. And then you can uh, develop commercial products uh, later on out of this. But um, our approach was first, we wanted to um, see is there a way to make something better? Is it working? And I think we have now the data that which shows, yes, it's working. And then you want to uh, continue with the development. I mean, a big Pfizer, which is a multi-billion company, you know, they, they take more risk and say, if you have a new drug, let's try it and go into a clinical trial. I mean, they do also a lot of work, preclinical work before they go in, into a clinical trial. But um, here, this is a old drug, right? <laughs> Um, and uh, we just put a better delivery system on it, you know. And so in terms of the delivery system, like what kind of like health approvals and like safety checks are involved for that? Like I would imagine it's held to very much the same standard as the actual active ingredient itself. Like was there like a whole bunch of animal testing and like starts out with like bench tests and then moves into animal tests and then small scale human studies, just like everything else would? Yeah, with the excipients, it's a little bit tricky. Uh, excipient is only as, um, something we use as a filler or uh, emulsifier. They can get only get approved after they were part of a drug 
a finished truck product. So all the ingredients we put into the foam, they have pharmaceutical grade monographs and are accepted in Europe and in the United States and in Canada. And they have also, uh, they're tested for toxicity, for if they're allergenic and so on. So the excipients we use in, in this formulation are all um, safe to use, but the combination um, of this, yeah, does not need uh, approval by itself. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so it's it's more like a, a new recipe with already previously approved ingredients, and then putting them together in that fashion with the micro emulsion for the absorption. Gotcha. Okay. Now, is there anything we need to be aware of when prescribing and compounding, you know, with fomoderm as the base? Like, for example, if we're prescribing ketamine for pain, you know, conceivably, you'd have like a pretty narrow therapeutic index there. You don't want the patient to be like super therapeutic on the, if they start suddenly absorbing a whole bunch more. Like, how much should we be adjusting our dose down from? Okay, I mean, I can't give you yet an answer because we have not yet um, tested this. We only had discussions with um, clinical pharmacists who said, yeah, this would be a very good um, a molecule. Um, we would have to look at the overall dose. I mean, Orally ketamine is at the moment given up to 200 milligrams, I think, and then people get really high in, in sessions. Um, so we would have to look into what would be a normal dose uh, which we administer to a certain surface area and see that this dose is, um, assuming it would get 100% absorbed, but um, topically things don't get 100% instantly absorbed. They might build a certain depot in the stratum corneum, which then slowly gets released, you know, that's also effect in the skin. Uh, that would be things we have to look carefully into it and then also work with physicians and their patients on it and see, um, do they get the relief? And I think um, a co combination of lidocaine and ketamine might be a very good one because lidocaine works very quick. And then the ketamine is, has often a little bit slower onset so that you get a quick relief. And if you have a foam for people who have shingles, they don't want to be touched, right? So no cream mm -hmm. don't want to have, but a foam which is easily to spread, uh, that might be also one of the things which could make a difference but as i said this is in the future also where we have to work more on it and we only did solubility tests and stability tests to look into are these molecules um can they be made into the form formulation the next step is really again an observational study first to see um do we get a response from the patient in the way we think uh, it should work uh, as i showed you with the diclofenac Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so should people be using it uh, to compound with that other list of things, or would you say it's directed mostly at the diclofenac for now, because that's where the studies have been? Well, diclofenac, we have the data, you know, for diclofenac, yeah. the data, uh, but um, if somebody wants to work with us towards um, the other molecules, um, as I said, we we evaluated them, we looked at the stability, um, but we have no clinical data for the others. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So it's a little bit uncharted territory still. If you are going to use it as the base, you know, start low, go slow, just as you would with you know, prescribing. Literature has um, ketamine at 5% gels out there. The lidocaine is also um, given in, in, in different concentrations, you know. So it, it, these molecules are already compounded. Um, 
but uh, we wanted to see, okay, if somebody wants to use them, is what are the concentrations, maximum concentrations that our base can tolerate? But as I said, we have not the clinical data for this, mm -hmm. uh, but other studies have shown that they used ketamine at 5%. Um, and as I said, there are also even commercial gels available for lidocaine. You know? Yeah, no, the reason I ask is for exactly that. You know, I remember a case back when I was in residency, we actually had an elderly lady patient who was using topical ketamine and she came in one day and she had just been like slathering it all over her leg, like way more than was intended. And she was definitely a little bit loopy. And mm -hmm. so you know, you want to make sure that you're like not over treating the patient, right? Obviously, this was a bit over and above, but no, so that's super exciting. That's really cool to see that you soon will have some more direct information in terms of exactly what those uh, ratios for the, the you know, 5% and what the equivalent would be there and how we can start using it um, in these new compounds as well, in addition to the diclofenac. Uh, just being mindful of time and we're kind of coming up to the end. So if anyone else has any questions, feel free to pop those into the chat. But Otherwise, I mean, in terms of using diclofenac and the Fomoderm base, what would you recommend be the, the go-to prescription that doctors should be starting with? What would that formulation be for the compounding pharmacy? Okay. Um, everything under 2.2%, I think, or 2.3% is considered OTC. And OTC is not um, reimbursable. So 25 um, to 3%, if the patient is insured, then the insurance would pay for that. Okay, gotcha. So that's like why Voltaren comes at the 2.32% or whatever it is, right? Just to like be right under that threshold. Exactly. And so if you want to have that coverage, we got to put it in at 2.5% compounded then. Is that correct? Yeah, 2.5 or, or 3%. You saw many doctors um, prescribing it at 3%. And so far, we have not heard anything back that a patient had um, side effects. Okay, awesome. Right on. Okay, well, I look forward to incorporating more of this into my own personal practice. I hope everyone out there listening to this has learned something today as well, but super cool new technology. Thank you, Dr. Lobenberg, joining us today from RS Therapeutics with new compounding-based Fomoderm. So yeah, uh, if you want your patients to have coverage, if you want them to have that better absorption, uh, you know, just improved efficacy, 2.5% uh, seems to be the sweet spot there. So thank you so much. Uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, where can they reach you at? What would be the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, they can um, go to our webpage. We have at rstherapeutics.com where you can send us messages and questions. Uh, also, you can call us. We have a 800 number. And my partner, Dr. Asami, can answer you also all technical questions you might have. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, well, I guess that wraps it up for today. So thank you again so much for joining us. That was fantastic. Thank you very much for having me.